Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Roselle. Um, there's one thing I didn't say as I was doing announcements and so on was maybe it's good that it should be by itself, but a huge thank you to everyone who played a part in Vacation Bible School this past week. It uh, uh, was, was a good time with uh, the kids. We had probably around 20 kids here uh, throughout the, the four days of Vacation Bible School and uh, just a great time of interaction and, and teaching and and all of that with, with the kids. So do encourage you to keep on praying uh, for those children and their families. Um, you know, some of them were from our, our church body here, but quite a few of them were not. And so uh, we have this, this little window of opportunity to speak into their lives, to, to have uh, some input there. Uh, but now we pray that, that God would use that in the hearts and lives and, and uh, uh, draw those who don't know them, know Jesus to him, and then help them to, to grow to get, uh, if they're not already established in a, in a good church that, uh, that uh, teaches God's word, that that would happen as well. So, All right, if you turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 1, uh, we have been over about a month now uh, getting this, this introductory section, or what's called, technically called the prologue, uh, where, where John is going to tell us the good news about Jesus. That's why it's called a gospel, right? Gospel means good news. But he's not going to have us kind of figure out who Jesus is as we go along, but he wants, as he's writing here, you know, about 60 years after Jesus has been here on the earth, he wants us to understand as we go into John and all of his readers, this is who this Jesus is. And so all of the things that follow are going to be demonstrating what he tells us outright and very clearly in the first 18 verses of John. And so if, please follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 18 aloud here. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which shining, or which I'm sorry, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
or the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so John really wants us to know who this Jesus is that he's been teaching about for for decades, right? And yet he's still eager to have people know who he is and put their faith in him and believe in him. And remember, his, his purpose when he gets to the end of the book is these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is experiencing that life, but he wants it to be experienced to the full by those who read this gospel. And so in the first Uh, 13 verses, first 14 verses actually, Um, he's been laying those things out and particularly showing us that Jesus is in fact God. He's not just the Messiah, the sent one, but as Messiah, the sent one, he in fact is God. He is the word, he is God's revelation to this earth. And in last week in in verse 14, he focuses in on that idea of, of word And reminds us that the Word, the Eternal One, who is God, became flesh. Remember that idea that that his emphasis before was he, he was continually existing in the past. But at a point in history, he he became flesh. Isn't that kind of a a mind-bending thing? That the one who always was existing then became something? He took on human flesh. He became like his creation. He became one of us. And actually then he says he, he, he dwelt with us, or literally he tabernacled with us. He came and, you could say, pitched his tent next to us. Remember that picture in the Old Testament in the tab, in the, with the tabernacle. It was right in the middle of the camp when, the, when they were traveling from Egypt, right? And everything was built around that tabernacle. Then later, the temple was built, and, he, and though we wouldn't think of that as a tent, it was a very temporary building, wasn't it? In fact, at one, one point, it got torn completely down. But he had this temporary place where his presence was shown to be. But now, God himself took on flesh. His tent was a human body and dwelt with people choosing his words as he spoke to them, his actions, being with us. He really literally dwelt among or within us as humanity and within the Jewish nation. And we saw, he said, his glory, which means we, we, carefully, we were able to carefully observe the glory of this God-man. Yes, in his miracles. Yes, in him raising the dead. Yes, 
in all of those things, but more particularly that he was the one who was full of grace and truth. Those two things that we tend to separate. If there's grace, oh, well, we have to, we have to shade the truth or drop some. No. Jesus was grace, giving where it's not deserved, but never separated from truth. Always totally linked together with that. That's who this Jesus is I'm going to tell you about, John says. And so when we get to verse 15, which is where we're at, he continues to to help us understand who is this Jesus. And he says, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So he brings John the Baptist back in. We, we, we saw about him a little earlier. We're going to continue with John the Baptist and his witness. Why does he keep bringing this man up? Well, for one thing, back in verse 6, we found out he was a man sent from God. If God sends you a messenger, do you think that the witness he has is worth hearing? If God says, you... You go and tell this people. Absolutely. In fact, it's amazing, this, this, this man sent from God, if you turn back to the very end of your Old Testament, as God is, is at a point of stopping new revelation that would be recorded in the Bible for about 400 years, here's one of the last things that he, he tells the people of Israel. If you go to Malachi chapter 3, Verse 1, he says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so predicted here, you have this 400-year gap. Stop and think about what 400 years is. Back up, we're talking 400 years prior to us is what, 1620? Not just yesterday, okay? But that was the last word that was recorded for the Jewish people in in the scriptures. So that's the next thing to be watching for, right? There's this messenger who's going to come, he's going to prepare the way. In fact, here he literally says he's going to clear the way before me. God is speaking. So isn't the word of that one who's going to speak really important? We better listen to him. We've been waiting for 400 years. Imagine if somebody showed up, you know, in Washington, D.C., and we said, well, back in 1620, it was predicted this person was here and would have a special message for us. Should we listen? Absolutely. And when John the Baptist was born, you know, his, his father acknowledged and recognized because God had gotten his attention by making him mute for a while and and really shaking up his world. But uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 76, here he inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're told back in verse 67. And then verse 76 says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And then he quotes from Malachi. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. 
That, that tells us something is serious about to happen, right? Because back in Malachi, it said, suddenly the Lord will come. And he did. You know, he, he was in the temple, and that's what was predicted back in Malachi, right? And he was with a whip, and he was clearing it out, saying, clean this place up. This is my father's house. Don't fill it up with people who are greedily selling things and making business of my worship. And then Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28, also points out that, in fact, John the Baptist was this one who was predicted to come. Luke chapter 7, 24 through 28, he says, and, and right before this, John was in, in prison, and he was, he was asking, he sent messengers, is Jesus really the one? And, and, and then Jesus gives an answer, but in verse 24, he says, when the messengers of John left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Where did you go out, or, or what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, so you catch the anticipation that should have been there for John's message? I mean, here he's fulfilling Malachi. And Jesus is saying, this is the one that was predicted to come to prepare the way. And he's the greatest of those born from a woman in his era. Right? You can't say anybody else is greater, or, so therefore whose words should, should carry the most weight. You really ought to be listening to John the Baptist because he's not the end point, but just the one preparing the way. Therefore, the one who comes after him is the one that you should listen to, Right? And so this one, who's, who's the greatest of his era, by the way, the era he's talking about reaches back into all previous history. Here, here's the guy that, you can, that Jesus is, is bold enough to say he's the greatest man of the last thousands of years. Should we listen? I think that's what he, he wants us to understand. So this testimony of John the Baptist that, that John the Apostle is writing about here is saying that, listen up. And not only does he, does he get our attention that way, but he writes about what John has to say in verse 15 when it says, John testified about him and cried out. He uses a form in the Greek, which is a little bit unusual. It doesn't work in English very well. He actually uses the present, uh, pre uses present tense verses or ver present tense <coughs> verbs to speak about a past event, which is kind of odd in English. 
And so the, the 1984 New International Version translated it that way. Here's what they, the way they translated it. It said, John testifies concerning him. He cries out or, or cries out with an ongoing result saying, and then he tells what he says. It's like John wants to transport us back to listening to John the Baptist hear this and hear, hear what it is he has to say. And he wants us to have the idea that John's testimony, it's as though he's standing in front of you. Whatever time period you're reading this, he wants you to get the idea of this. This is a live and active testimony. So don't say, oh, John, that guy long ago, yeah, he said something, so what? No, he wants it to be like you are standing out there in the wilderness listening to John the Baptist cry these words out because this is the Jesus. This is the person that he's going to be telling us about throughout all of these chapters of his gospel. And what does he say now? Finally get to that, right? But he says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now he's just getting us ready for this concept. Got to, John's kind of taken these words of John's and said, Here's the summary. Here's, pack it all together in one spot. Here's the essence of his testimony. In verse 30, we'll hear these very words again. So obviously they're important, right? But he states a very profound truth in, these verse, in this verse, that though John's ministry began first, and Jesus followed, Jesus is far more important. Well, what we just saw from the Old Testament makes sense. Because John was the one who was to come before, to prepare the way, to get people ready. Therefore, the one who follows that ministry is going to be greater, right? Of more importance. And that's what John, even though Jesus said was so great, John testifies, the one who follows me, the one whose way I have prepared is infinitely greater. Matter of fact, he'll, he'll emphasize that graphically in the coming verses when he says... He who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Call me what you will, I, I, I shouldn't even be taking care of his dirty feet. I shouldn't even be taking care of his shoes. That's how great he is. That's what the greatest of his era says about himself. But here John explains why that's true. Because Jesus existed long before John ever existed. John, as a human being, was actually born before Jesus was. In the Luke account, we see that, that John the Baptist was, was born to, to his mother Elizabeth, and then Jesus was born a few months later. And yet John here says, the one who comes after me, whose ministry follows me, he, he has always been, and interestingly, he takes us back to that, that verb to be, talking about going, being in the past and ongoing way. Takes us back to verse 1. And he tells us that he existed, or he was, in an ongoing way before me. John's testimony is this one who follows me is God.
God. This one who follows me is the eternal one. And so as John the Apostle is getting us ready to, to hear about Jesus, he, wants, he really wants us to have that concept in mind, doesn't he? This is not just a man who kind of fell into some sort of a popularity that propelled him to, to, to headlines in Israel. Now, this is God himself who came, took on a human body, and is acting out a, the plan of God that, that had been made up and created and put in motion before the world existed. That's who this book is about. He is the preexistent one. As we go on to verse 16, and it, it's, it's most, most uh, uh, of your Bibles will show the end of the quote. And so we're back to John, uh, the apostle, speaking here. But having established from John the Baptist's testimony, he says of this one, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Remember, this, this is not a book just written to people who already believe. Remember, at the end of the book, he says, these are written that you may believe. So, so is, at least part of his target audience is people who don't believe yet. So how is it that he can say we have all received of his fullness? Well, let's not forget all the things John's already said about who Jesus is. Verses 3 and 4 make it very clear that Jesus is the creator, right? There's nothing that has been created that he didn't create. And so it's, it, if Jesus is, is truly that one who created everything, no human being has not already received immensely from Jesus because Jesus made every single one of us, right? Believer or not. He was the one through whom we all came into existence. And every human being has been, been given compounded grace, grace upon grace, as he says here. Gifts beyond measure already, even if you're just breathing in this world. Uh, there, there's a th the thing that, that uh, uh, is called common grace. God gives rain on the crops, right? He gives air to breathe. He gives you the gift of life itself. He gives you the ability to think and to reason and to process. He gives you relationships with other people. Just think of all that has just been given to you, not because you deserved it, not because you ought to have had it because of who you are. No, because God is just so good. He says, we've received from his fullness grace upon grace. But remember, too, John's already told us what his fullness, what, what is, is Jesus full of? Well, verse 14 said he was full of grace and truth. So all have received blessing from, from Jesus' grace and truth, even if they haven't believed yet. I mean, think about it. Sin could have, with complete justice, resulted in the instant physical death of Adam and Eve. It could have ended in the instant death of any or all of us, right? What did we deserve but death? And yet, Grace is ours that we keep on breathing and have the opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear the truth 
Not only that, there's truth all around us, right? We look out, outside and we look at those beautiful scenes and the hills and the plants and the animals. There's, there is the witness in God's creation of his existence and of his love and care for us. He's given us his word, right? Given us pages and pages and chapters of truth. Grace upon grace. But how much more for those who have actually believed it and entrusted themselves to Jesus. Look at the, at the grace he lavishes, as Paul says in Ephesians, on us. And he plans to keep on piling that grace on us into eternity. Right? Have we received of what, is, what Jesus is full of? We have. We don't even deserve our next breath. But we have this, these piles of gifts from him. As John continues, he mentions a couple of gifts. He starts with the lesser gift, verse, uh, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Now understand, we've, we've just gone through Galatians, and we might be tempted to think, oh, well, here's, here's the bad thing, and here's the good thing. No, no, he starts with a great gift. The law of God was a great gift to the Jewish people, and in a sense to all of humanity, because it demonstrates what God is like. It shows us what his holy standard looks like, right? But as we should all know, of course, the law isn't going to save anyone. No one can keep it because we're sinners. It only pointed out our sin and our inability to match up to God's glorious character that's reflected in that law. But in Jesus, we have so much more. But it was a glorious thing. In fact, when God gave the law, he pointed that out very clearly. Turn with me, if you would, back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 4. <clears throat> verses 5 through 8. Here's, here's what God says about this law that he gave to the Jewish people. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, here's Moses speaking, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God, whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? See, we look at the law back through the cross and we think, Oh, well, people who try to keep the law, that's, that's wrong. You're never going to get salvation that way. And that's true. But the law itself was a rich gift to the people of Israel. And they had truth and they had righteousness displayed for them in that in such a way that, that no other nation on earth could understand God's goodness and righteousness. That's what Moses is talking about there in Deuteronomy. 
This is a, a great gift from God, but it's a lesser gift. It's a great gift from God. If you don't think so, read Psalm 119. All of those, those over 100 verses are talking about how great God's word and, and over and over again how great his law is. But when we get to the second half of verse 17, we discover that there's something even greater. As amazing as the law is, it couldn't save anyone. It could only condemn but it says in the second half of verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So now through Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the greatest gift has come. It only, you know, the law, of course, only pointed out that we were sinners, unable to match up to God's glorious character. But in Jesus was the truth of who God is. And what he is like. And the evidence that we are sinners. But there's also grace. The truth isn't diminished one bit in Jesus. But then he, he opens up and he reveals for us the ability to give life. To give forgiveness. To give what is not deserved. The gift of undeserved forgiveness of sin, of new eternal life, comes by means of Jesus. In him becoming one of us, he brought grace into existence in humanity in this world. There was grace in the world, but there's something about him becoming a man that brought grace in flesh and blood. And not only that, in, in becoming a man, he completed what was needed for all the Old Testament saints who, like Abraham, were told, believed God, and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Right? The grace they needed came into being when Jesus took on flesh and blood, when he came into this world to die for sinners. And he brought to complete reality that same gift that we now experience for those who had believed on him in advance. And that's some of the things John's going to show us throughout this book. Exactly what we needed came into being in the incarnation. A miracle that provided exactly what we had to have, but would never have even imagined, would have never thought that it could be. And so John then takes it just one step further in verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, how can we understand this one who who is called Father. How can we understand the, the God who is infinite and eternal? The God who knows everything? How, how do we begin to grasp him? Well, God has, for all those centuries, been giving us revelation, right? But how do you really know him? As he says here, no one's seen God at any time. Now, now there's a sense in which a few people 
could claim to have seen God to say Isaiah in his vision in chapter 6. And Moses, who, remember, he had a, in, a shielded vision, says he saw his back, right? Spoke to him face to face. And yet, they really didn't have the opportunity to really see all of his glory or to really know him in a full way. As sinful, unglorified human beings, it's something we could not, not endure. And yet it says here that Jesus was with his Father. Understand the relationship issue there? That, that concept of Father. There, there is only one true Father that exists in the universe. And that's God the Father. All other fathers are, are a reflection of who he is and what that idea means. He created fatherhood to help us understand who he is and what he is like. So we can look at our own fathers. We can look at people who are fathers with children and say, okay, I'm starting to get a concept of who God the Father is. But one of the key truths of being a father is that, that a father passes on his nature to his son. So like it or not, you are like your father in many ways. In the case of Jesus, God the Son, this is completely true. When it comes to the essence of being God and all of his character. All of that that is the father's is the son's. He has the exact same character. He has the same essence. He is God. And he is the unique, only begotten of the Father, it says here. Um, and I said the only begotten God. Some of their versions translate it slightly different, but if it's the only begotten Son, it's still the same thing. Because as the Son of God, he has the complete character as the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. So in the case of Jesus, Jesus though here, it wasn't that he didn't exist, came into existence and had his father's character, but he eternally has existed with the character of his father in him. And he has been in continued intimacy with God the Father throughout eternity. Here it says that he is who is in the bosom of the Father. Present tense, ongoing, right? In the bosom. It's an odd term, isn't it? <laughs> it's not, not something I hear people use much around here. But, it, but it's I, the idea of complete fellowship and closeness. And so context kind of determines when you would use it. It, it, is, it is used about the in, complete intimacy between a husband and wife. But it's also used of picking up and carrying a little lamb. Talks about God carrying us like lambs in his bosom. Or carrying a child in the same way. And you think about a little baby, how you hold them close. And there's nothing between you really, right? You just, just hold them close and you cuddle them in there. That's the, that's the intimacy that this term has here. Or it, it's also used about very close friendship where there's, there's no fear, 
There's nothing between you and your friend. You're a friend who is in the bosom of your friend, and there's nothing bad about that. It's just talking about that complete, unrestricted fellowship between two people. He says, John says, this one I'm talking about, this Jesus, who is the Son, is in continual, complete, unrestricted, unhindered fellowship with the Father. And because of that, says, he has explained him. Now, the word explained uh, is where we get our word exegesis. That'll, help, that'll be meaningful for some of you. But what exegesis is, is what I'm trying to do right now. I'm seeking to explain this passage of Scripture. He says, Jesus has exegeted the Father to us, explained to us who the Father is. And he didn't do it only by speaking. He did did do that. But he did it by existing with us, by sharing life with human beings, by living in such a way that you said, oh, that's what God would have said, because he is God, right? That's what God would think in this circumstance. That's how God would react to those things that are going on. Jesus came and exegeted the Father, explained the Father to us in life, in flesh and blood, in a way that we could could, could read about the things John's going to tell us when we say, oh, that's who the Father is. So it'll be just like when Jesus was asked in, in John chapter 14, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And remember Jesus' response? Have I been with you so long that you don't know me? His being with them gave them the, the complete understanding of who the Father was because He is the Son, He is God, and He is in perfect unity and relationship with God. Well, these are the things that John is planning to share with us about Jesus in the chapters ahead. He's going to illustrate them from his life, his words, his actions. He set the stage with amazing truths and plans to demonstrate them to us when he tells us that, about who Jesus is, what it was Jesus did. I just want to say to you today, if you're here and you have not entrusted yourself to Jesus, learning about the book of John is an incredible opportunity for you. Because John said he wrote it so that God could be explained to you in this way. Flesh and blood and words and actions. It's a great opportunity to learn who he is and why you should entrust yourself completely to him. Now, I will have to say, you you can hear the book of John and then make that decision, having found out who he is. But I'll also say what's coming will be so much better if you have already believed and his Holy Spirit comes to live inside you and is then teaching you you as we have these times together, as I speak. The Holy Spirit takes these words for those who are his and helps them make sense and understand them. And so I will say then also for believers, be sure that you're sensitive 
that you are listening to the Holy Spirit. Don't let the opportunity that the Gospel of John presents be an opportunity that you let pass by because you really weren't paying attention, because you weren't really drinking it in, or because you really didn't like the way I phrased it or the way I did it, or because you had too many other things going on. The Gospel of John, I'm learning to love it more and more already just from the little bit of time we've spent here. Let the Holy Spirit apply who Jesus truly is to your life in the months ahead as we go through this amazing gospel. Because it's an opportunity for God to do a work in you that he really desires to do to change you, to pull you closer to him. You could say that you would be in his bosom learning from him. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And you are pleased to use uh, my imperfect words and my imperfect abilities to, to share your truth, but, but more, more completely, you take your truth and, and you apply it to our hearts by your Spirit. And I pray that there would, if there's any here today who are resisting what your Spirit is trying to teach them, that they would, they would stop resisting, they would, they would give in and let you do your work, that you would bring them to belief or you would help them to deepen their belief in Jesus because they've heard your word today. And I pray that, that we begin to see real change because of, of what it is you want to do through us understanding your son Jesus, therefore understanding you and knowing you. Uh, we are so grateful that you are that kind of, of a God, that you reveal yourself, that you draw us to yourself, and that you give us real life when we believe in, in, in your son, Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.